are back. This is episode 69, finally, of the Great Divide podcast. And as it happens, episode 69 has the third and final part of our interview with Tony Butler. So strap yourselves in. We are ready for the final part of the ride. Here we go. Well, let me ask you about the album you did previous to Peace in Our Time, because I, I saw that there was a little discussion of this on Facebook recently that you were involved in, and I just wanted to um, to bring this up again, too. But um, a couple of years ago, shortly after we started doing this podcast, we were talking about The Seer, and I got in touch with Robin Miller. Um, I wanted him to come on the show. He did not want to come on the show, but he did was kind enough to email with me mm-hmm. and um, – First of all, he expressed his love for you guys and and his amazement for how great you were as musicians. And he talked about um, a completely different mix of that album that he had done. The only surviving track was the single version of Look Away. And if you listen to that single version of Look Away versus the album version, you can really hear the the differences and the the lack of the drums being drenched in reverb, that kind of thing. Yeah. So uh, I think this was brought to your attention maybe on Facebook recently, but we actually started a petition to try to get this thing released. I was made aware of that when this subject came up. Um, yeah, and I've mean, been talking with Bruce about it. We're trying to get the whole thing released because he said that it's been discovered and, and they do still have it. Yeah. So I don't know what if you have any recollections of, the, of that mix and how it might have been different or if you even have any idea of how that could be approached if such a thing is even possible to <laughs> Because we've got lots of people who are involved in it and want it to come out, but our biggest problem is we really don't know where to who to let know about this. You know, we don't know who to present these signatures to, or or how to anyway. Well, I don't know if I'm going to be able to add anything to that because well, let me just go back to the time. Sure. As far as I can remember, working with Robin Miller was uh, fantastic because he was so different to Steve in attitude. He was so different in his approach to music, but he obviously did his homework with about the band and he really made himself available to the band for ideas. I mean, he, he, he got Stuart on side very quickly. He got me on side very quickly and the others. So, you know, the, the sort of basic get in the studio and start doing some backing tracks was a real joy to work with and very funny and amusing because, uh, you know, Robin's blind. Yeah, yeah. Well, he sees, there's a that, that short bit short of being totally blind. Anyway, so um, unbelievable. You know, there used to be some very kind of funny situations that would happen through that because uh, you know, we'd be sitting down listening to a playback of a track, and he'd get a cigarette on and he's talking, and then the next minute he's flicking his ash and stubbing it out, and he's wondering why everybody's pissing themselves laughing. It's because he's actually stubbing his cigarette out on the recording engineer's hand. <laughs> He was putting it in the ashtray, and all of us could tell laughter just not to embarrass him. And and the poor engineer is like, I'm not going (laughs) to. That was Will Gosling, right? That was Will Gosling, yeah. Yeah, Okay. What a genius guy he was as well, and, you know, still is, and uh, all all, all good health to him. Um, But the recording has just got one massive high point for me was the day that. Her ladyship came into the studio. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, you know, being a long-standing, paid-up member of the Kate Bush fan club, the one thing that most probably was the proudest thing I've ever been part of was the fact when she rolled into the studio to come and record on the actual the title track. Um, you never saw four boys act like children 
everybody's like being really foolish but she was such a person of magnanimous um, character but so little and insular it was just just enchanting and then to hear her work and she worked for what seven hours just doing lots and lots of overdubs harmonies and blah 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 and the whole thing was a masterclass And it was just, and you know, I said earlier on that I was rich in some of the things that happened to me. Mm. You know, it don't get much richer than that. It's just fantastic to have had the opportunity. And then, and, and again, I don't know, other people's recollections might be different. I don't remember anything about mixing because I, I, I do know that we went out on tour more or less straight away after we finished the, doing the recordings. And uh, we were going to be receiving mixes uh, whilst we were on the road. And I think we started getting a couple of mixes. Uh, I think remember getting the mix of Look Away and we were listening onto the tour bus and being quite vibed up. You know, a band's on tour and you think about your next album and you think about the success of the next album and all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's really kind of, sort of hype-worthy. Uh, and then something happened. Uh, an atmosphere changed and we weren't quite sure what was going on, but uh, Ian Grant's mood changed quite severely at one point. And basically, he had word and, and told us that Robin had been fired by the head of A&R of um, Phonogram at the time. And obviously, we were very concerned about this because you know, we were happy with him. He was producing some good stuff and we were looking forward to getting the mixes and we were on tour. Uh, and then also he'd been fired. Uh, the guy who was in charge of us at that time was somebody who hated us. And his name was Dave Bates. <laughs> I was just going to say it with derision. Yes, yeah. we know Dave Bates' name. Dave Bates, um, who was in charge of us, because Chris Briggs had, had left uh, Phonogram by this time and gone on to Chrysalis. Um, he was in charge. He sat, for, we, for reasons we still don't know to this day, and then he started bringing other people in to remix the album. He brought a guy called somebody, again, didn't know, didn't know of. Uh, I don't want to sound nasty about the guy. This guy was called Walter Turbitt. Uh, and, you know, all of a sudden he was apparently remixing the album. Wow. Uh, but then again, we found out subsequently he wasn't only remixing the album. He was redoing a lot of the guitar parts. Oh, my God. Which, you know, you don't piss on somebody else's parade like that. You know, particularly when we've got two geniuses like Stuart and Bruce, somebody else adding guitar parts because they think they need to add all that shit to make our track sound better. Uh, this practically caused a mini war between us and the record company. Um, it was a war we lost because what this guy did ended up to be the album, which is why people like yourselves now who are getting very, very hot in the collar about the fact that you want to hear what was supposed to be uh, put out initially. 
Uh, and I can understand, but it was something that we had to swallow, and it wasn't a very nice pill to swallow. And it left you know, the whole relationship between us and that record company just floundered from that point onwards. And again, it was another album that was lost because of, of crap politics and people taking charge of something that they should never have been any, allowed anywhere near yeah. with. Um, I mean, even Ian had, you know, I've never seen Ian violent, but man, I'm sure that Ian would have taken something rather large and heavy to, to this guy's head if he'd got the opportunity to. Like the Spinal Tap version of Ian with the cricket exactly. bat. Exactly. They all copied that completely from, from Ian and his feelings at the time. Um, and then it was, it was horrible. It was a part of the record business that I never really knew about. None of us knew about and People could do that and, and really mess up your life. And, you know, people wonder why the fortunes of the band sort of dove, uh, t- tailed out yeah. from that point. And it's because of things like that. And But in origination, the, the, the album worked. Every, all the songs are fantastic. Yep. We spent a lot of time writing them and rehearsing them and stuff. But the ultimate sort of, I think, sort of question about whether we were the right bunch of people is the way that they decided they wanted to style us. Mm. You know, we were wearing bloody lame jackets and shit. And, and it was, and you know, it was, it, it was just a record company trying to over-commercialize something that never needed to be commercialized. Right, right. And, you know, it left a really sour taste, taste in everybody's mouth. Uh, Stuart and Bruce's drinking <laughs> fucking exploded. You know, and, and we, we felt like children, not in control of our own destinies. And, you know, the grown-ups were just fighting each other. And it was horrible. And that album suffered because of it. But to come back to date, um, I was watching um, late-night TV about three weeks ago, and there was a Kate Bush story. And um, I've seen a couple of programs like that in the past, and I always got pissed off that her time with us wasn't part of her story. And uh, I kind of decided to make a, have a moan about that because I just signed up to Twitter then and I thought I'm going to experiment with Twitter. <laughs> uh, and then it kind of mushroomed into this whole thing about, you know, a petition about trying to get the Sia remixed and stuff. Because yeah. I know that there was an attempt done before or when the idea was first muted to re- re-release it. And I was kind of quite vocal with Ian saying, look, you know, if we release it, I want to be there. I want to be part of the mixing team. Uh, but again, it's because people didn't want to spend money. They didn't do it. After that initial sort of flurry of, of tweets and stuff, I sent a tweet to Robin mm. to say to him, is there a different mix of the seer particularly? And then I got a reply back from a, a new colleague of his who informed me that him and um, Robin were part of a new company that they just sort of acquired. I won't say anything about that because it's not, not my business. Uh, but he said he would get on to Robin to find out, and Robin was on holiday at the time. And Robin wrote back to me saying that he hasn't got anything to do with the seer. He relinquished everything a long, long way back. So I would soon they sort of make the, the proper inquiries about it and make the proper sort of uh, approaches to the proper people to... But, you know, nobody's going to want to remix one track, but but then again, nobody's going to sort of stump up the money to re- remix the whole album. Well, well, the idea, well, the idea is that the remix is already, I mean, the mix is already there. Like Robin yeah. Miller's original mix is is there, so it wouldn't need to be remixed again. 
Well, it was, it, was, it was weird that he, he denied knowledge of it to me. But yeah. maybe yeah, this one that was found is something that he possibly thought he'd handed back, but all it was done was stored in a studio. Well, he, and, he told me that he, I'm sorry, he told me that he, re, he mixed the entire album and it was done and it was his mix. And he, he gave that to Dave Bates and the company, and that's when they said they did not like this. That I think he said it, they said it reminded them of the Chardet stuff he had done. I don't know why that would be a problem. But from what Miller said, he turned in the mix, and he just it was gone out of his possession, but it still yeah. remained with the record company. So, you know, he, uh, according to a, him, he had finished it. Well, there's only one person to blame for that fully, and we've already mentioned his name. I'm not going to mention it again because it makes me feel <laughs> ill. Yeah, yeah. I've never, I've never known somebody who was so intent on destroying a band's career, mm. and he's supposed to be working for them. Well, and the other thing that that Robin did mention in the email, he said that the uh, the original version of the Seer was more like a duet between Kate and Stewart, and as great as the final version turned out, he said he was very upset that they kind of pushed her into the background as almost a background vocalist instead of the way that he had her initially. So again, I just don't, you've got Kate Bush, one of the best voices in town. Yeah. Put it so far back in the mix. My Christ, somebody needed to fucking kick up the arse and excuse my French. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm really kind of, <laughs> I'm enjoying myself and I haven't done that in this way for such a long time so yeah let's uh, awesome. keep going yeah yeah sure uh, it's kind of interesting that we're going backwards album for album so I have uh, yeah. more going back to the Steel Town era and yeah. and touring and I'm going to preface this that you spent a year on the road touring the crossing you spent nine months touring the sea year you spent pretty much nine months peace in our time you spent two months touring Steel Town what happened with Steel Town and the touring yeah. Good question. <laughs> Good question. He's like, really? Wow. Really? Yes. Uh, <laughs> that was October to December 84. And after that, there was uh, nothing much. Well. You did record the, the Restless Native soundtrack uh, early 85. So that's obviously what you did. But it seems like a short tour for an album that uh, did touch on number one. Yeah. Well. Now you're asking me to sort of, sort of wind my way down some deep dark crevices of my of my mind here. <laughs> That's what we're doing. <laughs> uh, I like the Star Trek fans who who go to these things and say, "Do you remember episode sixty four when you encountered the Klingon?" <laughs> oh, this this will something has happened recently to help sort of kickstart some of these um, uh, memories. I've, I was at, having a meeting with Ian Grant very recently, and uh, he's st- thinking about moving house. So he's getting rid of a lot of stuff that he's got, and this man has got a treasure trove oh boy. Of, of stuff. Where is he dumping it? I'm salivating already. Well, some of these just, just dumped on me because I've got now <laughs> I've got a lot of, lot of old big country master tapes, but I've also got now a huge box of photographs, slides, contact sheets, negatives of you know haircuts from the year dot (laughs) (laughs) there's hair and there's no hair and there's lots of hair and there's wow there's bruce and la hair and yeah it's it's, it's just a whole treasure trove of of photographs but steel town steel town 
the way that I remember it was the second album syndrome that was hard to deal with. Not because of making the album itself, it's because that the band were burnt out after The Crossing. Mm -hmm. We toured so much with The Crossing, and nobody complained because it was great. So making an album and then being on the road for nearly two years was something that we just loved. You know, we, we were doing what we were supposed to do as a band, and we were taking our music to the four corners of the earth. But we got to the last corner of the earth, and it, the wheels fell off completely. We got to, we we're going to do the, sort of the Japanese and the Australian leg. And when we got to Japan, you know, I would admit it myself, the band were pretty burnt out, but we didn't kind of realize it. You know, the constant traveling and touring was taking its toll, but we weren't really very aware of it. But when we got to Japan, uh, Stuart started to melt down on various occasions, just purely exhaustion, drink, you know, the the usual things. Uh, And then we were sort of due to sort of maybe do one or two more gigs in Japan and then go on to Australia. But Ian pulled it after um, a couple of gigs in Japan because Stuart was just, he was gone. He was oblivious to life. And the rest of us weren't far behind either. And welcome to the first ever Big Country Tour in Japan. This song is uh, about families being split up in order to make a living. It's called Close Action.
So we never got to Australia, which really saddened a lot of us. But when we got back, it wasn't a long time before we were being urged to start getting things together to start working on Steeltown. Now, I think if the truth be known, we should have had a little bit of longer time to recuperate. Uh, we needed more time just to sort of be human beings again, People spend a lot of time with their families and then a bit of time to start working on new songs individually, then we can sort of join together collectively. Uh, unfortunately, we were pulled together to start working on new stuff collectively before, I, I honestly feel, before we were ready. So we were clutching at straws originally to start coming up with new things, but I think we got ourselves into a rhythm in order to do it. But by the time we ended up going to Sweden to, to record it, we were still pretty much screwed from the crossing. There was just no time. It was just a, it, we just needed to have a little bit of space just to reacclimate ourselves to normality. And even you know, after about two weeks in the studio, we had to stop recording because you know, just nobody could work. Nobody could do anything constructively. And, and, and I remember Steve calling a halt to stuff because, you know, he was having some domestic problems. Stuart's having domestic problems. I was having domestic problems. And we, we stopped recording for two weeks. And that was the only, literally, that was the only kind of break that we had uh, coming off the crossing was those two weeks in between recording, uh, starting a recording for Steel Town and then going on and finishing it. By the time we come, came back, there was a completely different, um, atmosphere you know there's an atmosphere of rejuvenation and just yeah you know we're, we're here and we're doing this and it's great and you know we're, we're working in uh, Abba's studio and it's all cool and it was a very different sort of it's, it was like the fog had lifted for everybody mm. so we got into the recording and you know and there were the rest of it but I'm not really sure why the I think possibly the reason why we didn't tour Steel Town as much as we could have is because I don't think the record company were as supportive uh, with that album. I think they they wanted and expected another crossing, that another sort of weird album that connected with people, but they didn't realise why because you know it wasn't three minute wonders and pop songs. So when Steel Town, which was a lot darker, a lot denser, and you know very very hard in terms of its lyrical outlook, they they were it was beyond them they were they were out of their depth mm. and and as i say the, we started suffering from record company malaise really from then yep so possibly that's why we didn't continue as long as we possibly would have i mean the i think the album was number 1 in southern ireland you know and we, we we hardly spent any time there sort of uh, we certainly didn't go to, to, well, to my recollection, somebody will possibly tell me that I'm wrong, but I, I don't remember Steel Town in America. It, I mean, it's just the weirdest thing. Yeah. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm surprised you said it was that short, but my memory doesn't really serve me that well. But that was possibly the reasons why 
I don't believe you guys toured it here at all in America. Uh, can I chime in here? Yeah, go ahead, John. Yeah, yeah there, there was a couple of shows, because I was actually at one of them, uh, supporting Roger Daltrey uh, on the East Coast. Oh, right. Okay. That's why I didn't remember, because it, it was a support show. Right. Okay, yep. But there was no, like, there was no official uh, headlining tour of America at the time, I don't think. Not that I remember, no. Yeah, yeah. Well, thanks for that, um, once again, chiming in with all the information I need. <laughs> John is wearing a, a long, dark robe right now as the, the <laughs> big country priest of big country yeah. information. Got a nice bottle of wine there and a cigar. <laughs> Put up. Exactly. <laughs> the bowels of Parts Unknown Studios. It's, it's more like a monk type of robe. you know. Yeah. I think, you know, I th- I think the Americans would have found Steeltown hard if we hadn't been able to sort of be there to show the way properly you know, and introduce it properly. Well, I got to tell you, you know, as, as an American, I when I heard Steeltown, um, I was I liked the crossing. I was I was still in my early teens. I was very into you too. But when I heard Steeltown, I just it was mind boggling to me, I, and it still is. I've never heard anything even remotely like that album, and it's, yeah. it's honestly it's my all time favorite album. Um, so you know, I, I think if you poll big country fans, I think that album will probably come up more often than not, even, even surpassing the crossing as the favorite, but yet I can totally see, I can totally get why a record company would be afraid of that because as you say, it is very dark. It's, it asks, it asks so much of the listener. I think it's also suffered again, possibly because I think maybe Dave Bates was in, in, was around that time and East of Eden was kind of, kind of touted as the single. And, um, again, I may be slightly inaccurate here, but I, I mean, I heard stories that he, he recut that single 42 times. Oh my gosh, really? Wow. Yeah. So, you know, it was, it was destined to go nowhere. Uh, I mean, it, it, I, I personally don't think it should have been a single, but, you know, that's what they decided and that's why it wasn't supported. Uh, what was the other thing about Steel Town? No, a nice thing about Steel Town. <laughs> Myself and Steve got into this real little thing about giving bass sounds prehistoric animal names. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And bigger and nastier and beastlier, you know, the more prehistoric. I mean, I think we got to about gargantuan, and that was for the actual track Steel Town itself. <laughs> so it had a gargantuan bass sound. But, you know, we kept ourselves amused by sort of doing that sort of thing to try and describe what we were heading for. Wow. But it, it, was, it was a joyous album to to. to to do because Steve was fantastic. We all had the, the run of studios and developing stuff, as I told you earlier on. I did the sort of girl with grey eyes thing, and uh, it was it, it was a nice time, but it was it was a disappointing time because we were being steered by a captain who really didn't like our ship. Got it. Yep. That's uh, uh, what a shame. Let, let me, um, and I'm sorry again for the randomness of some of these things, but the, it's, it's so rare to, to actually have you here, you know, obviously, and it's nice to answer some of these questions for us. But I want to take you to kind of a, I guess, an odd time for big country, and that was the period with Pat Ahern and when you were sort of in between albums. It was like after Peace in Our Time and before No Place Like Home. And with Mark out of the band, I, I'm just curious what your what your recollections are of that period. I know that Pat was a friend of yours and you had known him. Um, 
what was that time in the band like? Because there were there were some interesting tunes that came out of it, but I, I it was weird, and I kind of I don't have a lot of recollections about that because I'm it was it wasn't a very enjoyable period of time because obviously because Mark had made some decisions which I thought were not great decisions, breaking up the best rhythm section that you know a lot of bands could possibly want, mm. but because I think. Again, I think maybe there's this kind of preconception that Stuart was veering away from the band. He was getting, you know, kind of into sort of weird moods and, you know, the, and the whole treadmill aspect was possibly getting to him yeah. in a way. And, um, and Mark was being sort of enticed back into um, a band and band potential with our old dear friend Simon Townsend. Um, because the band weren't doing very much at that time, Mark kind of hooked back up with Simon and doing whatever Simon was doing at that time. And I know there was moves to try and get me involved, but I, there was no way I was going to do that because I, I kind of I was I was enjoying Cornwall, um, and you know if we were going to have some time off, I was going to be at home and be with my kids and enjoy living where we we lived. Right. And I remember there was a point when Ian Grant came to my house and we, you know, having big discussions about stuff. And then I think, if I remember rightly, Simon Townsend even came down to Cornwall to talk to me about getting on board with what they were doing. And and I think Ian was having very, very sort of deep conversations with Stuart about whether, you know, the whole thing needed to continue. So it was a very weird situation for everybody in, in, in different, although the sum of it was still kind of quite, not quite fragmented but in the background there's a kind of great fragmentation going on and i couldn't really understand why but i, I still think it was a, a you know i think you've got to realize and possibly i'm as i'm recollecting this stuff from steel town record companies all the way through this period this this kind of weirdness with the record company wasn't inspiring anybody yeah and it was deflating people um, even Mark to the point where he thought, well, I might be better off going somewhere else and doing something else. Mm. Stuart thinking about possibly not carrying on at all. And I was just sitting waiting for people to decide to do something and, and, and grow up a little bit. And uh, I just, and when Mark decided that he was going to go with Simon, I was, I, I, it, that hurts me because I just didn't see why, what, what, you know, frying, jumping out of the frying pan into the wok and the wok wasn't burning didn't, didn't make any sense to me, mm. but that was his decision, and I had to, I had to sort of live with it. And but then, it, then came the sort of scenario about, well, what are we going to do? What would we do? And Stuart was stumped, Bruce was stumped, and I think it was me who suggested the closest thing to Mark in terms of drumming that I could remember was my old friend Pat, who was at one time again a drummer during the Simon Townsend days. <clears throat> Not on the air, but the Simon Townsend band. So that's even further back. Wow. And and uh, and uh, Pat had worked with a few bands of, of note by that time anyway. So we tried him. Stuart and Bruce seemed to be happy with him. So he came on board. And um, we sort of went through that period with him. But after a while, I think Stuart and Bruce got a little bit bored with him. They, you know, they didn't find him terribly inspiring. Um, so he went, and then I think was it Chris Bell that came in 
Chris Bell, yep, yep. He was kind of, I used, always used to think he was a bit of a, a John Bonham version of a big country drummer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, I could see that. It was what we used to call doof bang, and that's kind of what we all wanted. We wanted that doof bang thing. So he was involved for a while, but, you know, not having Mark, I think we all struggled kind of entertaining the fact that we were still a real band. Although, you know, the Stuart was there, Bruce was there, and I was there. So the principle of the band was still there. Uh, 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 but, you know, it didn't kind of feel right, but it did the job yeah. whilst we're doing it. And then I think the thing that really pissed Mark off is when we were when we got Simon Phillips in. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. And I knew that would upset him because it, Simon was somebody that Mark really, really valued. And Simon was, you know, for us to get a top-notch drummer like that to come and work on the album was just, you know, we all knew it was going to work. Chris, Chris Briggs, who was our A&R band back then again, he was just beaming because we, you know, we got a quality drummer, and you know, but we weren't sure whether we'd get him for any touring, you know, right. get him into the album. But uh, he wouldn't kind of sort of say that whether he was engaged in any touring. Which I think this is where Chris Bell came into his own properly. But Chris Bell's drumming was nothing like Simon Phillips. So yeah, it was a, a weird period. All through that period, without Mark, was just it was like being big country, but not country do you know what i mean it's yeah just, definitely you know the there was a the, something else in the mix but it didn't want to gel and kind of the music the music kind of followed suit as well with no place like home and and those types of albums not being yeah. necessarily i mean i mean the, the stuff, we, we did um a recording uh what save me yeah again forgive me for the chronology chronology about this but i think this is about around the same time it was yeah uh, yeah because pat played drums on save me and the other track that we did Part of the world that's right and and we had tim palmer produce that yeah now i thought the experience recording with tim palmer was kind of good we've got this new innovative kind of producer you know big rockabilly haircut and him and Stuart seemed to get on really well uh, and then we did Save Me in Heart of the World. And for some reason, that relationship didn't continue. And I don't know, I can't remember why. And the reason why I kind of draw my attention to Tim Palmer is that he's recently friended me on Facebook. Oh, wow, really? Oh. <laughs> so uh, I've thought know, of getting him on the show before because I've really liked, well, I really liked what he did with you guys. Which, the ironic thing about it is I, I loved what he did with him, His Majesty's Infernal, His Infernal Majesty. Okay, okay. As a brilliant album, or a couple of albums that Tim Palmer did with them. And I loved, I mean, nobody would expect me to like sort of those sort of gothy bands, but I absolutely loved him. I even went to see them at Exeter University, and I don't go to gigs. I just thought they were a phenomenal rock band. Wow. Gothy rock band. And when I found out Tim Palmer produced them, and I, I thought to myself, why didn't he do that with us? <laughs> Or maybe we just didn't have the right songs, or maybe again it wasn't the right chemistry, and I kind of kicked myself there. Mm. And it's a real sort of sad sort of situation. But that whole period that you're looking into now, I don't have any great memories of them because they kind of came and went, and they weren't sort of they didn't have a lot of value. It was just a band trying to survive. 
Right. And it wasn't until we did Buffalo Skinners that we actually felt as though we we were a bit more confident. But then again, as I said earlier on, myself and Bruce got a lot more involved in trying to turn the band into a, a rock band as opposed to a sort of country western band. Right, right. Yeah. Uh, um, me bringing in songs like or what turned out to be The Selling of America. Ah, one of, one of the best on the album. It's just a, an awesome thing. I mean, I'm, you know, a, a lot of that music is mine, but when I hear Stuart playing my, my, my guitar lines, I was just... And then what he put on top was just sensational. Yes. And Chester's Farm, which Stuart balked at, Chester's Farm was a, a, a song I'd written called The, the Cenotaph. Yep, we've discussed it, <laughs> believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I really loved it. When I played it to Stuart, he kind of thought, you know, we could do something about it. And then when he, he turned it to Chester's Farm, but even he wasn't that gung-ho about it. And I kind of thought, well, why? This is, you know, this is phenomenal state-of-the-art big country. But he, it was too rocky for him. Wow, that's surprising he, to hear. He was going, you know, the, the title track that didn't get on the album. He was Buffalo Skinners. He was Pink Marshmallow Moon. Uh-huh. He, he was that way. It was softer. It was melodic, more melodic. And, you know, well, me and Bruce, we, we thought it was time for us to rock again as a band. But Stuart wasn't in that kind of ballpark at all. And, uh, you know, it wasn't something that was going to sort of drive a wedge for us, but it was something that we had to sort of negotiate quite quite sort of diplomatically in order to, to get the, the stuff done. Never, ever, 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 never, ever, 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 ever. That means never. Trust government scientists. This is called Chester's Farm. <laughs>
And I think the one song that really sort of pulled us all together was Seven Waves. Oh, which yeah. Is, oh. Which is basically Bruce's song. And that song appeased everybody because it was a bit a bit rock and it was a bit country and it was it was kind of that place where I think Stuart felt comfortable. Yeah. It was a great anthem as well. Yeah, in fact a lot of a lot of us have wondered if that might have been, you know, we even though the one I love is a great song, we, we thought about that as being maybe even a better single choice for that album. Well again, the one I love was initially not as hard hitting as it turned out to be. Mm. We just thought it was a bit weedy to start off with. And when we, by the time we sort of cranked the guitars up a bit, it became, you know, that kind of anthem type of song. And it's a great chorus, you know, and it's brilliant. And it was, it was a lighter moment as far as I was concerned. <laughs> yeah, definitely. One of the, one of the few. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that was, I think, again, us trying to find our feet again. Because Mark rejoined us then and... Uh, I think we felt a lot happier that he was back on board. Oh, yeah. But again, uh, that album wasn't Mark's album. So, yeah, I, rem- I remember seeing you guys on that tour in America. It's the first time that I, that I saw you. I, I missed the Crossing tour, but uh, you played at a place called The Bayou in Washington, D.C., in Georgetown, and um, it was on Halloween night. And I remember going and, and being a fan of big country in America, you know, coming out of those leaner years with Pat O'Hearn and et cetera, I was wondering, you know, who, who's going to show up at this show? I, I don't know any other big country fans right now. And the place was just packed. And I, rem- <laughs> I just remember the, the reception, especially with Mark. You know, as soon as Mark came out, everybody went crazy. And it made me feel so good as a fan to know that there were so many others and that we all recognized, you know, Mark being back on stage with you guys was yeah. what it was all about. So yes. I mean, the one thing, I mean, again, talking to you guys about this, we're talking about stages of a career. Yeah. And if you look at it like that, you can see why there were possibly ups and downs. And apart from the sort of the detail of some elements, it's a life being lived by a group of people who, you know, have got to sort of deal with the shock of success and the, and, and, and the depression of failure and also surviving mediocre. Mm. Oh, that's you know, a great we, point. Yeah, we and we had mediocre times. I mean, we had two or three mediocre times. I mean, the late nineties was you know just pre pre Damascus was a, a mediocre time. You know, we were seeing ourselves being usurped by these new bands and you know these new trends and stuff. And you know, we were being sort of discarded into the backwash of, of rock music and. It was it was just weird as to how we should be defining ourselves, and driving to Damascus was possibly a salvation that we thought was going to be something that could really put us back to where we should be in terms of creativity. Mm. Um, anyway, like that's that brings us kind of up to date on that score. But yes, there were certainly times of mediocrity that. Uh, you know, sometimes people might say, well, maybe as a band you should have split up then. But I don't know. We're, I think every band who's got any form of longevity have to go through those stages. Yeah. Christ, marriage yeah. is a, your best way of sort of analysing any kind of relationship. Yeah. You know, you go through good times, you go through bad times. And the strength of uh, of the union is, is how you deal with all, all of those different types of situations. I love looking back on, on the entire catalog now from that perspective. I mean, I can certainly look back and think, well, when this album came out or this song, I was disappointed that it wasn't what I maybe wanted. But now, 
that, that look back on the entire thing, and we talk about this when we dissect these albums, it is. It's such a rich tapestry of music, and even even the stuff that you might have considered mediocre at the time, it still means a lot to us. So, yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah, I wanted to um, I wanted to move a little. You mentioned the time that you felt perhaps surpassed by others or struggling to find your place in the marketplace. I assume you're thinking of the wide long face era. Uh, coming out of the Buffalo Skinners. And I, I kind of see Wide Long Face as a, perhaps a, a more muted version of the same type of music as on Skinners, just not as intense and with perhaps yeah. more room for Stewart's uh, type of song, like Take Me to the Moon and uh, various similar songs, but, yeah. but but still within it. So was there was that more a compromise that you were allowed to do the harder stuff on Skinner's, or he went along with that, and then in the next one, he wanted a bit more of his stuff there. Well, it certainly wasn't as premeditated as that sounds. <laughs> no. <laughs> Bruce says that nothing is. I, <laughs> but I, I wouldn't disagree with your analysis of it, because, I said, yeah, I told you, the previous album, me and Bruce really wanted to rock things up, and we tried as much as we could without really upsetting each other. But Stuart came to the fold with Wild Long Face with some ideas, some song ideas that he was really, uh, you know, uh, and on listening to them when he played them to this and, and, and demos or whatever, you, you can't deny good songs regardless. And, you know, recording those songs as, as, as kind of watered down in terms of intensity and power as they were, that didn't matter. They were great songs. Take You to the Moon. I don't see it as a country wrestling song. You could do, but I don't see it. I'd see it as a very lamentable rock ballad that really kind of sings its heart out. And I think those songs really worked on that level. But ironically, that was the re-emergence of happiness with the band. Hmm. We We were doing demos for that album, at a place called Chapel Studios over in Lincolnshire, of all places. Um, I'm, I'm not sure if you're aware of the sort of the geography or the topography of that part of the country, but everything's flat. You can see for miles. Hills are a, a non-existent <laughs> pastime in, in, in that part of the country. It's just flat. You can see everywhere. In fact, it's so flat it should be part of Holland. <laughs> That's another debate. Um, but we found ourselves really enjoying ourselves in that studio. Uh, it was a studio that had two, two, two recording rooms, and we would sort of get together in one room and sort of bash out some song ideas. And then in the evening, you know, after, after dinner, anybody wanted to go into the studio to, to work out a, a, a tune or an idea or something, we, we kind of allowed ourselves to do that. And... I really enjoyed it because I found myself being in Stuart's company more often than not in those situations. And the first real sort of fruit of that sort of scenario was um, God's great mistake. Because that's just something that myself and Stuart just, we just organically started jamming around the same thing. And, And then the riffs started coming out and then the shape started coming out. And once we had a sort of shape, and and for me, if I've got a, if I'm playing a song on the bass that hurts my hand, I feel as though we're going somewhere. <laughs> I really do. And and it was it, it just 
felt like a great sort of track in terms of riffing and guitaring and stuff like that. Really very basic, but very fast. relation now to what I'm doing now because there's a lot of little jams and riffs that myself and stuff Stuart did at that time and one idea that I kind of started which Stuart kind of played along with, with but we kind of left it and moved on to other things is now part of the, the kind of lead song for my time it's oh wow song, it's a song called here comes the first one so it's a song I've kind of completely written, but it it's emanates from a, a riff that I started. Stuart joined in, and we had a lot of fun with it, but it never went anywhere. Oh, but it was great. in the same mold. It was in the, from the same gestation period as God's Great Mistake. when I was doing recording, I kind of recorded all the tracks I wanted to do, but I, I kind of realized that there was, there was something missing from the album in terms of dynamic and, and tempo and stuff like that. And um, I found a tape with this particular riff on, and it's on bass, it's not on guitar, it's on bass. 
uh, and then I've just completely written the song around it. And to me, that's what I call our relationship. Our relationship was organic in that particular way. Something happened, but it didn't gestate. It just lay dormant. And all these years later, it's come back to me, and it's come, to, it's going to come out as the song that's going to represent my time, me, as I am as a songwriter now. So that link, I think, is it's an incredible link, and it's and I'm really pleased that you've asked me about that question because that was the kind of joy that was in the group at that time. I mean, other 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 things like um, uh, the the celebrated and notorious eggplant. <laughs> I mean that's what happens when you get a band in a recording studio who are just <laughs> off their heads having a laugh giving the drummer an opportunity to shine and you get eggplant shine, shine in quotes right? <laughs> I'm saying no more <laughs> <laughs> there you go that's 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 as close to monty python we'll ever get bruce told bruce told us there's a remix version of that song (laughs) like a a 12 inch remix version of it i wouldn't be surprised again because we had the run of the studios everyone's just doing what the hell they like so you know (laughs) What, what Bruce and Mark were getting on in one studio, we wouldn't have a clue. Then they wouldn't have a clue what me and Stuart were doing in the other. And then we'd swap around. Oh my gosh! We just we, it, it was the joy of having, you know, that technology there for us to literally play with, not not to be, you know, erstwhile constructive with it, but it was just there for us to play with it. And you know, why the long face? Although sort of quite a drab title for an album, but I think it. it it certainly corroborates the fact that we were happy. So why the long face? Why miserable? We're not. Exactly. Hmm. I, w- I once wrote a, re- a review of that album in my college newspaper, and I just wanted to let you know that I, I described your bass playing as, um, I said something like, uh, Tony Butler's bass lines move with the grace of wild deer. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, it's very cool for me to be able to say that to you right now. <laughs> Prehistoric animal names, deer. <laughs> yeah, deer, <laughs> or the Scorpius. By the way, I don't know if you if you remember this, but Bruce shared this hilarious story with us. He said that uh, during the Crossing days, um, the line from Close Action that starts with a score of years. Yes. Um, he I'm said that someone. Say. Yeah. Yes. He said that someone. <laughs> I can't remember who it was, but yeah, Scorpius. Scorpius. What's it was it, the story. It came from the guy who used to be Stuart's minder when he was a pop star. Okay, a guy called Joe Seabrook, who oh, used, that's to be, right. used to be Keith Richards' minder. Oh wow! When the Stones weren't working, he came to work with us because he he, he liked us and he loved Stuart. And uh, <laughs> he kept saying, "Who is Stuart? Who's this fucking Scorpius?" <laughs> <laughs> we talked about that on our. Oh, we talked about that on our show, sure. and and you'll get a kick out of this. One of the uh, one fan, Oliver Hunter, he actually yeah. cre- created a likeness of what the Scorpius might look like, and he had Bruce <laughs> sign it. <laughs> uh, absolutely, no. Yeah, uh, they're sort of priceless. 
was, it was just a bunch of kids sometimes, and you know, and everybody joined in. And, and Joe, he's, he's not with us anymore, unfortunately. Oh, that's too but, bad. But um, him, he was. Stuart missed him when he when he went. I'm sure he he really he looked after Stuart big time. You know, in those early days of touring, and you know, when Stuart was becoming a sort of very teeny bop idol type of sort of lead singer with the band. Mm. You know, it, it was. He, I think without Joe, he may not have lasted at all. Wow. Because wow. Joe kept him up. Joe, Joe kept him around and kind of sort of very sort of focused on who he was as a musician rather than this sort of pop star that he, he had become unwittingly as well. So, and Joe was really important for him. So, so missing, losing Joe was very, very hard. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. That's a shame. We've lost a lot of great people along the way. I know. I know. So that's life, isn't it? That's... It, that's it, it, Certainly is. I don't suppose you have a track list in the wide long place because there's a song I'm trying to remember. Because believe it or not, I can't remember all the songs from our albums. (laughs) I don't listen to them. (laughs) That's shocking. Um, Let me see here. Can you can you describe the song a little bit? Maybe is it one in a million? Perhaps. No. um, Send you. Ah, send you. Yes. Yes. Well, that was, at one stage, I think, possibly my most favorite ever big country song. Wow, wow. Because I just loved the chorus. And uh, there was just something kind of incredibly enchanting about that song. And I absolutely loved it to death. And I, I couldn't understand why that wasn't shared with a, a, a larger public. Thank you. Yeah, the thing that always got me about that song was the line, um, hey, kid, there's nothing wrong with you. There's nothing yeah. wrong. They're just so really beautiful lyrics. and Absolutely stunning. And, and, that, and that sort of goes alongside your spirit to me. Mm. I, I don't think people probably sort of see that in the, the same light as I do, but I just thought they were just sheer songwriting genius. Yeah. Oh. So, so my last one for today, I'm going to go back now to uh, do a sad year for us, 2002, the first year we're coping with that, Stuart. And uh, yeah. during that year, you did a convention in Zandam in the Netherlands. So yeah. I'm just interested from your perspective, how was the concept of doing a convention presented to yourself? And what was the gut feeling for yourself and for the band? Did you have a lot of back and forth or did you immediately feel like, yes, you want to do it? It just... How did that come about and how did it feel for you? Um, I'm afraid I was a little sport boy at the time and I refused to do anything. I just didn't see the point. Uh, I was very, very blinkered in my thoughts. Um, Obviously, it was still very raw um, and nothing made sense at all. And, um, And it wasn't a very good time in life for me either. Uh, on a personal level, because uh, not only did I lose Stuart in that same period of time, I lost my my mother-in-law. 
and then I, and I lost my mother. So, mm. you wow. know, death, death befell me big time. And uh, I had a lot of sorting out in my own head about what to do. So something like a, a convention just didn't seem appropriate to me at all initially. But then again, I got out of my selfish sort of thought, probably through talking to Ian. You know, Ian's my guiding light, and I, I listen to him, and I respect him fully. Um, so by the time I got out there, I stopped being sorry for myself and decided to give everybody else a chance to do what they need to do in that kind of situation. Um, I don't have a lot of memories, to be honest. Or I, I, I had to be reminded that's kind of where Mike Peters kind of came on board as well mm-hmm. uh, to, to, to do some singing. And uh, I think Josh, was Josh Phillips, of course, with us? Because the guy who played keyboards on PC. Yes, uh, yes. I, was, yeah. I, was at, I was actually at that one. So, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. So I don't really remember much about it because, uh, you know, my blinkers were down and I was there because I was asked to be there. I didn't want to be appear like a spoiled brat or, or just completely selfish. And, you know, as far as I was concerned, it was go in there, do it, and share the evening, and then just get, get home again, to be honest. So, no, if I, if I couldn't, if I decided not to have gone, I wouldn't have gone. But as I say, I'm not, I'm not a selfish brat, and I do sort of take um, what other people think and say, uh, but it certainly wasn't something I would willingly do, sort of willy-nilly. So, mm-hmm. yeah... And I did it, and uh, I'm kind of glad I did because everybody else, the people who were there, I think they were just really happy to be able to sort of, like the rest of us, you know, emote in a way that showed what they, what the band meant to them and what Stuart meant to them and stuff. And you know, we had to really kind of, we had to live with that for such a long time. I mean, as I said, going back to 2007, it was just weird to have to deal with that. I mean. At, and then more recently with Mike Peters, when we played at, at uh, the Alhambra in Dunfermline, um, when Stuart's sister came to the, the, the gig, you know, all that was really hard to bear. You know, we, we, we it wasn't rock and roll. It was kind of, I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how to describe it. All I knew that it just, it's, 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 I knew it had to be done. I'd rather have not have done it. But I did it, and I'm happy I've done it, but I wouldn't do it again. Yeah. It was just hard. So, yes, going back to the Zandam thing, I was in a bad place because, of, as I've described. Yeah, and that's so interesting to hear because you seemed so invested in that because not only did you perform with the big country guys, you did an acoustic solo set, and you did Q&As, and you did a lot of stuff. Well, at the end of the day, it's fine. I'm a professional. <laughs> I try to be professional. And sometimes you've got to put yourself second. Yeah. And I, you know, I've lived my life like that. I, I, I learned how to be a professional musician, but I learned how to be a professional rock musician. And I think that sometimes you've got to take second, fiddle, play second fiddle to the people who put you there in the first place. Mm. And as right. much as I might have bellyached about it, and on, on the three major occasions I did, I always ended up doing it. Hmm. I, I, I never regretted it, but, you know, it's just something that I would have preferred not to have to face. But I did, and hopefully I did it professionally. 
uh, the mere fact that I actually did something solo, I mean, I can't even believe I did that. Uh, even now, when I sort of think about it, think back about it, I think, how the fuck did I do that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I know it was appreciated. Yeah, it was, it was like hard last night talking to the Irish fans and, and because getting back together with Mark was, is such an emotional thing for me. Like, I even cracked last night. You know, my, my life is all about emotional attitudes and you know that's what defines big country you know yeah. that word emotion is a very big part of that group Definitely. yes Ooh. well my my final question for you tony and we'll let you go after this but it's kind of takes me back to sort of something you said at the beginning of this conversation and that's when you approached Stuart and said that hey you know let's take a break get your head straight um yeah. take all the time you need and i realize there are probably lots of personal things here you don't want to share and i totally understand that but i, I was just curious what was his reaction to to that comment i mean did he feel like you're right i need to do that or did he just kind of i, I don't know i'm just i i'm just curious what he how he responded to that sort well, of heartfelt the heartfelt plea. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think either of us will ever know that because I went into that conversation very single-mindedly because I needed to impress upon him, you know, the the depth of my feeling, which really, and I think I I kind of alluded to this with the, with the song Dream Boy. He didn't respond; mm. just listened. But he could, there was nothing he could say because he's he's not the kind of guy who would try to defend himself from what other people saw his his woes and his ills. He wouldn't do that. I mean, this blind sort of Scottish idea that you know you don't show your heart on your sleeve. Yeah, he was very much part of that. But he knew he was screwed. But he wouldn't say it. Mm. He would admit it. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of things that happened on that tour, yes, and I don't think it's my place to say, where you just wanted to take him, punch his face and say, stop, just stop. Yeah. You're, you're you know, I hate to use this word phrase, but you're killing yourself. And, you know, and, and I think the biggest sort of sinking feeling about it is that when Ian rang me up to tell me that what happened, my first reaction was, I'm not surprised because, mm. you know, those who knew felt that way. And that, that European tour was the beginning of the opening sequence of that sort of destruction that he brought upon himself. Yeah. And he was destroying himself on that tour. I mean, I woke up one morning on the tour bus to find that he really sort of damaged his face. And that's because he fell upwards of a flight of stairs. Wow. You know, he's just in a bad way. I, I don't think anybody would really appreciate how bad he was. Mm. But, you know, we had to live through that. We had to support him as much as we could, which was what, you know, my little bit was to say, look, let's just stop this. We don't need to do this. It's not about the money. It's not about, you know, reinvigorating any albums and stuff like that. You know, this is just another tour. And if you're not enjoying it, and it, and it was clear to the people who was seeing the band that Stuart went himself. Yeah. I, I, I remember distinctly being in Germany one night and playing in a sort of smallish sort of venue. And I, you could see the f people at the front just looking at Stuart and almost see tears in their eyes because they knew the person they, they, that they'd known and loved for such a long time weren't there. Mm. And that was, you know, that's, that's hard 
to to do whilst you're trying to sort of pretend that you're a band that you're enjoying yourself, and it just doesn't work. And I could, I'm too much of a a heartfelt musician to go up and pretend to be a fucking band that everybody wants to be wants right. to see. Don't do that. That's not what this is all about. Right. Right. Mm. Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. Way to go picking an uplifting question, Tom. Well, no, I was just going to say. <laughs> I, I was going to say that I, we don't want to end on such a down note. So, I, as we let you go here, I just want to tell you, you know that. I, we had Kirsten on the show at one point, and we discussed. Obviously, we didn't discuss you know the, these types of things, but we discussed her album, which is absolutely fantastic. If you haven't heard it, I I highly rate it. But um, I told her something that I will tell you, and I've told every member of the band, and that is, you know, sure there are things maybe big country could have achieved more of, or there are maybe certain heights you could have hit that you missed, or whatever. But it doesn't matter at this point. Myself, um, I met my wife because we had a mutual interest in big country. We have, yeah. chi- we have children now, you know, and you can, you can clearly and honestly say that that would never have happened without a lot of things, but mm. big country, if they hadn't been in the equation, you know, these, these two life forms that I love and adore more than any, anything in the world would not be here. So, you know, and, and I know Svein has a similar story and so many other people have these stories. So Whatever you might want to question about career paths or, or fortunes, how they went, I mean, just know, and I'm sure you do, but I just, just know that there are so many people who continue to be so positively affected by what you did and will be for generations to come because of what you did. Well, if so, you allow me to sort of just put a poignant aspect to that conversation. Yeah. I, yeah. I think when you're in a, a band and you're just playing music and you think you're playing good music and you go out there and people start getting into your music, you don't think of the consequences. Sure. You don't. You just don't. I mean, it's just not in your DNA to sort of think, I wonder how this is going to affect people. Right. right. Not, not, not the fact that they enjoy the music, but how it's going to affect their lives. And that only became really apparent. I mean, your situations you described, yes, we've heard that many, many times. You know, I, I've even heard of people said, "Yeah, you know, I was, I was, I was making love to my girlfriend, and then it got to that point of the song when I had to withdraw." I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, that's just too much information. I'm out. And then, yeah, and then, uh, honestly, was it egg, was it eggplant? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no. and conversely you get a guy saying that you know uh in order for me to do my job i used to have to listen to big country music and then when you read what his job was you just go i didn't want to know that either <laughs> the, guy was, the guy you know he's a in the in the military and he had his details to clean up bomb tanks oh my gosh oh that's not a laughing matter yeah but you realize the kind of responsibility that you carry being in that position, and and I think if you stop to think about all of those things, I think you go insane. Right, it's too much. Yeah. Because when you do uh, something that's an emotional charge for you, has that kind of end result, you know that's 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 a hard that's a hard thing to carry and and, and deal with. Sure. So, you know, you've got to kind of, which I think we did quite really quite well sometimes, and just have that element of naivety mm-hmm. that keeps us sane as a band and keeps you sort of working and doing what you do. Because, I mean, I'd hate to think I'd write a song that's going to spawn somebody's three children. I don't know how some of these old soul singers can live with themselves. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, that's hilarious. Well, that's great. Well, look. I mean, we can't thank you enough for being on the show, and I, I'm. I hope that you enjoyed it, and we certainly loved every second of it. 
I, I, I've really enjoyed this immensely, and I say the reason why I've enjoyed it is because I feel as I've got something to say again, and uh, and I'll be happy for you to oh come back to you uh, further down the line, and that'd be great. We, I mean, we'd love to talk with you when the album comes out. Maybe we could go yeah. through each track and and talk about them. I would be very mo- more than happy to do that. That would be fantastic great stuff. It's fine. Anything you want to say as we as we head out? No, just just thank you. Uh, yeah. this, uh, we've been doing this for many years, and when we started this, we never thought we would actually talk to members of the band, let alone that they would acknowledge our existence. So this is uh, this is immense for us. So thank you so much. Well, I mean, I know that I've got to prepare myself, uh, you know, the, the sort of press and promotion aspect, but I don't see this as press and promotion. I I I think this is. In the spirit of how I, why I decided to go to Dublin last night, mm-hmm. I think it's a way for me to say thank you. Mm, that's awesome. Great. That's fantastic. Well, look, we're, we'll certainly be promoting all of these things on our pages and our sites as well. So, yeah. you know, we'll be looking out for the the new website and all the info. And we're we're extremely excited to hear the music and read the book. So, thanks for sharing this with us. It's, it's a pleasure, guys. Thank you very much, John. Yes. Don't change. keep playing that filthy bass my friend I will do I will do all right all right everyone that was Unbelievable. Uh, as I say this, we've just hung up with Tony Butler after more than three, almost probably pushing four hours of discussion with Tony Butler. Um, and uh, I think we're all drained, but in the best way. And he, he shared so many amazing things with us. And uh, man, that was it worth waiting for us fine? Of course it was. What a stupid <laughs> question. But I guess we spent all our best ones. Which is exactly how it should be. Well, no, but, I, guess uh, the, I guess the better phrasing would be, like, did it, did it live up to the weight? Of course it did. Yeah, it really yeah. did. Wonderful. I feel like we have really nothing much meaningful to say at this point. That's just... Uh, no. <laughs> we'll get these episodes out there, and hopefully everybody will like it as much as we did. Yeah. Boy, this was terrible. This is a terrible outro. It's been a while. <laughs> <laughs> let's let's scrap this and do it again. Okay, start over from the start, and this time try not to suck. <laughs> <laughs> Good, thank you. All right, that's going to be in there somewhere. Okay, so I'll try one more time. Uh, Worst we... episode ever. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, we can try again, but we really have said everything we want to say, so I'll just add a thanks to Tony Butler. A thanks to John for helping out in the shadows as usual. Oh, oh. (laughs) (laughs) So there you have it. Three episodes of Tony Talk. Three great episodes, we think. Hope you liked them as much as we did. So enjoy them. Let us know what you think. Uh, You'll find us on the Great Divide Facebook group. Send an email to bigcountrypodcast.gmail.com and visit jfng.com to throw him a freaking bone. Yeah. And I guess that's it. Thank you. Stay alive. Have at you. All that good stuff. All right, guys. We'll talk soon. All right. right. Sounds good. Bye-bye. Cheerio. Take care.
Hey, Stuart, what's this fucking scorpion? 